Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome or welcome back to Season 3 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. The Logical Christian Podcast is not here to tell you what to think. It's an exercise in how to think. Rather than just accept what we're being told with regard to current events, politics, science, religion, and everything else, we're going to stop the spin, ask questions, dive deep, and look at the world logically. And since logic is a gift from God, most importantly, we're going to look at it all as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Around 2,500 years ago, the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus made the astute observation that change is the only constant in life. 52 years ago, lyricist David Bowie said, Ch-ch-ch-ch changes. Both of these wise sages speak deep, insightful, eternal truths. And yet, with such time-honored truths like these, somehow we still desperately fear change. Some feel a loss of control, some believe it will create even more work for them, some fear the ripple effect, and some find the fear of change to be quite lucrative. You know, monetarily wise. Uh, Simply stated, making people afraid of change make you lots of money, you do it right. Know what I'm saying? On today's episode, first we're all getting mooned, and then I don't care if you're guilty or not, you're going to pay. So, unless you want a huge surprise, you'll want to avert your eyes, and for all that is good and right in the universe, don't touch it. And get your checkbook. Start practicing writing your zeros and commas. (laughs) You're going to need a lot of them. And so as to not create any anxiety, simply, here we go. You know, sometimes I think that it would just be better if I just wasn't here. No, don't get me wrong. Sometimes I think it would be better if you weren't here either. In fact, it's becoming clear that humanity shouldn't be anywhere, anytime, ever. We're basically just a mistake of evolution. (laughs) Evolution went too far, and now the only solution is a reset. A great reset. A reboot of evolution, essentially. I mean, not of microorganisms or or fish or birds, reptiles, mammals, whatever duck-billed platypuses or platypi are, bacteria, vegetation. Just a reboot of human evolution, and and maybe Canadian geese, because something went horribly wrong there. Those things are just evil. As we're told by every green organization, every green policymaker, the global elites, the leftists in general, there are just too many humans. We're consuming too many resources, we're emitting too many emissions, and generally we're just kind of a plague or a virus on this planet. If it wasn't for us, forests and rainforests would thrive, the water would be clean, the sky would be blue and pure, animals would be happy, healthy and abundant, and generally everyone would be happy. Except for the humans, who simply must be eliminated. There are some in this movement who legitimately believe that we are destroying the planet, that we're at or beyond the point of no return, and it won't be long before this blue marble floating in space will be a brown, dead husk of its former self. The rest in this movement don't believe that, nor do they care what happens to the planet. The only green thing that they really care about are the dollar bills. The green agenda is a very lucrative one if you can work your way into the proper positions of power. But for those like Greta Thunberg, they're seriously terrified about what this planet will look like in 10 or 20 years, simply convinced that we're all doomed because we drill for oil or drive internal combustion engines or use air conditioner, wash our bodies and our clothes on a somewhat regular basis. Although Elon Musk has become a darling of the political right, who I, along with many on the right, appreciate to no end for his outspokenness and unwillingness to capitulate to the pressure that's pressing down on him with increasing force, 
He's another greenie. I mean, not hysterical, but he's been convinced for a long, long time that this planet is going to be uninhabitable due to man at some point in the not-too-distant future. I mean, that's the sole reason he started SpaceX. It's sending up satellites, launching missions to International Space Station, and everything else he does is just really extras. His goal is to make a way for mankind to get to Mars to set up a colony there because he believes this Earth is on its final legs, and he wants to try to help at least a remnant of humanity to survive. But at least for the most part, I'm likely preaching to the choir here, at least I'd imagine I am, you know that we're destroying or we've destroyed the planet already. You know that we're a scourge on this floating orb. You know that if it wasn't for humanity evolving, evolution could have thrived, or something. But the Earth isn't enough for us. Our insatiable thirst for destruction apparently knows no bounds. Now we've apparently broken the moon. Now, what has the moon ever done to anyone? Nothing. That's the answer. The moon ain't done nothing to nobody. Well, with obvious exception to those who have been brutally murdered by werewolves, of course. Found on Prevention via Yahoo.com, headline, Scientists think we've officially entered the Lunar Anthropocene. Now, an Anthropocene is quite simply a proposed geological epoch dating from the commencement of significant human impact on Earth's geology, landscape, limnology, and ecosystems. I mean, including but not limited to anthropogenic climate change. At least that's how I would define it off of the top of my head and also via the Wikipedia entry for Anthropocene. So the lunar Anthropocene is the epoch, the time in history when man has made a significant impact on the moon. Those who determine, or at least purport to determine such things, say that this new lunar epoch may have begun in 1959, when humans first contacted the surface. Well, when the Soviet Union's Luna 2 spacecraft, you know, smashed into the surface of the moon. <laughs> This article begins with a very simple thesis statement, quote, When humans get involved in places they weren't invited, things start to change. The moon is no different. I mean, you can almost hear the moon weeping as the ominous music plays. Curiously, they hyperlink the word moon, and it takes us to an article from March 11, 2020, entitled, The Most Incredible Photos of March's Super Worm Moon. This seems like an odd thing to link to, but... And who am I to say? Now, this study has been undertaken by a team at the University of Kansas who have decided that man is, quote, one of the most dominant forces shaping the moon. And I'd say, of course we are. I mean, when you say that we're one of the most, well, I mean, if we've done literally anything to or on the moon, we constitute one of. I'd also have to ask, who else is impacting the moon? I mean, there's, what, like space stuff that may impact the moon from time to time and man and man-related items, and, and that pretty much rounds out the list of things that are impacting the moon. But these researchers are concerned. There have been more than 100 spacecraft interactions, apparently, over 64 years. So there. They link the word spacecraft, and it brings us to an article from March 30th, 2017, entitled, NASA is building a spacecraft that will fly into the sun's atmosphere. I'm not sure the author of this article, Mr. Tim Newcomb, understands what he's doing with links. Generally, if you link something, it should be relevant beyond simply a common word. But that's neither here nor there, I guess. We're talking about the survival of the moon here, people. Come on, focus. Quote, 
This idea is much the same as the discussion of the Anthropocene on Earth, the exploration of how much humans have impacted our planet. Justin Holcomb, the study's lead author, said in a statement, The consensus is on Earth. The Anthropocene began at some point in the past, whether hundreds of thousands of years ago or in the 1950s. Similarly, on the moon, we argue the lunar Anthropocene already has commenced, but we want to prevent massive damage or a delay of its recognition until we can measure a significant lunar halo caused by human activities, which would be too late. Okay, now you tell me what he was saying there. Now, I like how he's very concerned with the lunar Anthropocene, but he can't even nail down the Earth's supposed Anthropocene to any less than, quote, between hundreds of thousands of years ago and the 1950s. I mean... Buddy, that's that's quite a large range there. <clears throat> Maybe if he consulted with some other scientists. <sighs> I also like how the implications of human interaction with something is automatically bad. But that really goes without saying now, doesn't it? Now, Mr. Scientist Holcomb is very concerned with the current trend of man-moon interaction. Quote, In the context of the new space race, the lunar landscape will be entirely different in 50 years. He noted how human involvement has already, embrace yourself here, moving sediment and significantly disturbing the surface. He continued, quote, multiple countries will be present, leading to numerous challenges. Exactly what challenges, Mr. Holcomb? But he's not going to tell us that. Just, just trust him. It'll be numerous. That we know for sure. So why has Holcomb and the gang decided to make a declaration like this, especially now? I mean, don't we have enough problems without adding more? Won't somebody think of the children? And no, no, they certainly won't. They they hope to accomplish some goals by not just saying this, but by declaring it. Quote, They want to call attention to the vulnerability of lunar sites, especially considering the current lack of legal or policy protections against destructive disturbance of the moon. They also want to ensure that each human interaction with and impact on the satellite is well chronicled and aim to work with archaeologists and anthropologists along the way to ensure that recording. And what kind of recording are they talking about? Quote, By cataloging each footprint on the moon's surface, not to mention the presence of rovers, golf balls, and the left-behind bags of human waste, we could hope to preserve a detailed record of human interaction. And then potentially my favorite Holcomb quote, the final paragraph of the story, quote, as archaeologists, we perceive footprints on the moon as an extension of humanity's journey out of Africa, a pivotal milestone in our species' existence. These imprints are intertwined with the overarching narrative of evolution. Moving to independent.co.uk, covering the same study and the same story, they give a bit more insight into the concern of the researchers. A large concern is that man is preparing to visit the moon once again. They want to potentially dig on the moon and maybe even live there. Quote, cultural processes are starting to outstrip the natural background of geological processes on the moon, Holcomb said. These processes involve moving sediments, which we refer to as regolith on the moon. Typically, these processes include meteoroid impacts and mass movement events, among others. However, when we consider the impact of rovers, landers, and human movement, they significantly disturb the regolith. So, at least to me, this is new. Uh, it's, it's moon worship. I mean, not like as in it's a god, but but from an evolutionary worldview. I mean, how dare we 
horrible humanity even think of disturbing the moon? Now, what just blows my mind is that this is the same kind of stupidity that we're seeing on the Earth. Scientists seem to believe that on a planet that has a massive fiery orb in the sky and huge basins full of water, innumerable animals all burping and farting and eating and pooping, volcanoes naturally leaking natural resources, and so much more, man and his cars have, one, a serious impact on the entire planet, and two, set in motion a series of events that will result in the death of the planet just any day now. And no matter what we do, no matter how much we spend, that can never be changed. But we shan't let that deter us from doing just insane things, spending the money of multiple future generations, you know, trying. And now, these researchers are concerned with golf balls and footprints left on the moon by humans, while fully admitting the moon is affected by meteoroid impacts and other mass movement events, likely moonquakes, I'm guessing. In fact, moving quickly into the absurd, they're more concerned with a few baggies of human poo on the moon than they are with the human poo literally everywhere on the streets and sidewalks of San Francisco. Furthermore, they want to initiate this discussion before it's too late. Too late for what? I mean, I realize that the moon is a very important thing to the functioning of the Earth, but what do these guys think we're going to do here? I mean, when you come down to it, all we really require of the moon is the gravitational force. Man isn't going to crack the moon in half, we're not going to knock it out of orbit or unbalance it or anything else, so what exactly does it matter if we land and, you know, just kind of wander around on the moon and occasionally drop a few, you know, astronauts off at the moon pool, if you get my meaning? Well, the Guardian.com potentially has the answer for us. Headline, Moon's resources could be destroyed by thoughtless exploitation, NASA warned. So, NASA has a new initiative to make boatloads of money. I mean, to, sorry, to, to help whoever wants to pony up the dough to reach the moon's surface to survey exactly what kinds of resources might exist up yonder. The Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program will help private companies find what minerals, water, and I guess other might be up there so as to extract them in order to make permanent bases designed for human habitation in order to eventually act as the launching base for manned missions to Mars. Now, astronomers, who would actually like to explore Mars, if we're being completely honest here, believe that if we continue down this moon path, the, quote, unrestricted rush to exploit the moon could cause irreparable damage to precious scientific sites, gravitational wave research, black hole observations, studies to pinpoint life on tiny worlds that orbit distant stars, and other research could be jeopardized, they say. And how... I have no idea. They don't say. They just know that, just like scientists know we're destroying the Earth, and no, we don't ask how, they know we're destroying the moon as well, and, and also don't ask how. Now, please, please don't tell me that you don't care about gravitational wave research or tiny worlds orbiting distant stars. Please tell me that you're not the callous and cold-hearted monster that, uh, that they paint you as. It's not that these astronomers are anti-moon base, right? I mean, they just want to protect very important sites. Professor Richard Green, an astronomer from the University of Arizona, said, quote, A few deep lunar craters have been discovered to have been shrouded in shadow since the moon formed billions of years ago. The sunlight has never reached their floors, and so they are unbelievably cold, probably only a few dozen degrees above absolute zero, and that makes them scientifically very valuable. And these sites are great for building very specific 
types of observatories, but they're also regions that might have super cold ice that might hold the secrets to the moon and, more importantly, might hold the secrets and the keys to the eventual appearance of life on Earth so many zillions of years ago. And that article goes on and on and on, and then it eventually does end. But before it does, it talks about something with regard to getting the UN to modify some treaty, which I think I speak for all of us when I say the more we can get the UN to make global, universal, and interstellar policy, the better. <laughs> Am I right? Uh, yeah, I'm right. I'm right. Look, I got to ask the question, what are we doing here? Um, how much time, treasure, intelligence, and resources are we wasting on things that, uh, you know, just aren't going to happen? Or, or maybe they just shouldn't happen. I mean, look, I love space. I love spaceships, always have. But what's the point in all of this? Are we really going to build habitations on the moon? Now, I'm not afraid to throw it out there and say, eh, no, it's very, very unlikely. Could a few people live temporarily on the moon? Well, yeah, probably. But we're talking days, maybe on the outside months. But we're not talking about years. And we're definitely not talking about permanently. And what resources do we think we're going to find on the moon to build these bases? And if we do find, let's say, iron ore, are we going to build the infrastructure to process that ore on the moon so that we can build the infrastructure to build bases? The International Space Station took 36 space shuttle trips, not to mention other launches by various agencies, to build it and has been under construction since 1998 with the latest module being delivered in 2021. That's 23 years and counting. Admittedly, it's huge, but it ain't that huge. And it's definitely not an infrastructure to live in permanently or to launch rockets from. And it's not able to sustain itself. There are, I don't know, what, three, four, five, six supply missions per year? Something like that. Maybe more. How long would it take to shuttle? Well, we don't have a shuttle anymore or any plans for a shuttle. We don't even have a reliable lander at this point. How long would it take to move materials to the moon and Construct them, etc., 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 and Bob's your uncle. Let's gather resources, harvest crops, and build and launch rockets to Mars. Now, some might call me skeptical. <clears throat> so, are we going to send manned missions to Mars? N no, we're, we're not. I mean, that's a seven-month trip from Earth, with Earth to the Moon being a mere three days of that trip. Now, I know that we can launch faster and easier from the Moon than from the Earth, so you'd pick up probably a few more days in addition to those three, but as I said, that's once we build the infrastructure on the moon that can assemble, fuel, and launch these massive rockets. We're just not going to do that. And let's just say that, uh, hypothetically, we do build all the infrastructure on the moon to launch a manned mission to Mars. Why? I mean, how much will all that cost, and what do we hope to find? The International Space Station has cost us about... $150 billion, I say us, I mean us by the globe thus far, and, and what have they done? Well, some may say a lot. I'm looking at NASA.gov at the, and just note, it's not stated as the top or the best or the most well-known, just the 20 breakthroughs in 20 years. Uh, they list disease research and Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cancer, asthma, and heart disease. But what did they do? Because all of those exist and they don't seem to be going anywhere. I say, discover of steadily burning cool flames. So they found an invisible heptane flame that burned two and a half times cooler than a regular flame. Remember, breakthroughs. They tout new water purification systems. Because otherwise, let's be honest, they're living up there, they would die. Of course they have to purify their water. Now, this one legitimately 
could have applications in certain areas. I'll give them this one. They list methods to combat muscle atrophy and bone loss in astronauts who live in space. Now, this may be a breakthrough, but if they weren't living up there, this wouldn't be needed. Uh, They list exploring the fifth state of matter called the Bose-Einstein condensate, which was discovered on the Earth 25 years ago. And and so then a few years ago, they they did it in space, too. (laughs) Breakthroughs. And they list stimulating the low Earth orbit economy. Uh, Somehow this space station being up there has helped in launching satellites and putting them in orbit around the Earth and something. I don't know. They don't say how, but they just say it has. And the list goes on. And and I'm sorry, but half of the list wouldn't be on the list if they weren't up there in the first place. And the other half seems to be, well, not really breakthroughs. Again, some may, in addition to calling me skeptical, also call me cynical. It really comes down to the same thing it's come down to for a long time now. We're hoping to find the same thing these astronomers think they're going to find in super cold ice on the moon. The secrets to life. Do you know how wealthy we'd be as a planet if we'd stop following a godless evolution-based worldview? How much time, money, and resources have we spent to desperately try to prove there is no God? And they'll never do it because they're wrong. Their hypothesis is flawed from the start. They're chasing shadows here. Now we continue... The first of these commercial lunar payload services launched on January 8th, the Peregrine Mission 1. Now, this was an American-made spacecraft, so you know it's good, built by Astrobotic Technology. This craft and mission was first announced over seven years ago in 2016 with the goal of landing on the moon. In addition to the five high-tech, undoubtedly high-cost instruments that NASA sent on this mission... Many private companies and organizations paid to have their payloads included on this launch as well, which were comprised of scientific experiments, a a rover, cryptocurrency products, whatever that is, and commemorative plaques and capsules. Additionally, two companies, Celestis and Elysium Space, have also sent cremated human remains, or cremains, in the lander, as well as other forms of human DNA. The Celestis payload in the lander included the cremains of around 40 people, including science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke and Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. Now, who really cares, you might be asking? Well, the Navajo Nation, of course. (laughs) And why? (sighs) Well, because the moon is sacred to the Navajo Nation as part of their cosmology. And if human remains are placed on the moon, (laughs) well, sir, uh, that would desecrate the moon and, quote, be an affront to many indigenous cultures which revere the moon. Now, to the credit of the Celestis CEO, he said, uh, yeah, who cares about that? I mean, not in those words exactly. He basically said, look, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. I disagree, so we're just going to go ahead and do it anyway. Don't worry, though. The Indians... No, sorry. The native indigenous Indian American people of semicolor got their way in the end, and I think we've all learned a valuable lesson about thumbing our collective noses at the Native American moon god and or gods, as the Peregrine One has failed and will no longer be able to reach the moon. Yeah, they have plenty of battery power. No massive battery fires yet, but they're leaking gas, much like the car of a friend of mine in college where... When we got out after riding around, we smelled like raw fuel and were probably high. And I'm sure that this leaking gas, both my friend's car and this lander, or I guess it's a floater now, was or is probably destroying their respective environments or something. 
At the rate of the leak, it no longer had or has enough propellant to land on the moon, only able to keep the solar collectors pointed toward the sun, at least for a while, to keep the batteries charged, to stabilize the craft. Now, to their credit, they've turned on some of the instruments. They're gathering what little data they can, if for nothing else, than to salvage something from this failed mission. But eventually, the eight-foot-wide, six-foot-tall little fella will tumble out of control or float on into infinity or something or whatever. I don't know. Probably hit the International Space Station. Uh, that's just a guess. I don't have any inside information. <laughs> and no, that's just a joke. It's way past the orbit of the space station. It'll probably hit some alien craft and then we'll have a galactic war, which is just not what we need right now. So anyway, the Navajo Nation wins this round. Until the War of the Worlds, at least. But don't worry, we'll send more dead guys to the moon soon enough, or more guys to the moon soon enough that, if on a lander like this one, we'll be dead trying to get to the moon. I know that back at the beginning of the space race, those astronauts knew that they were taking a chance of dying every time they climbed aboard a rocket. The space shuttle showed us that space travel can be safe and reliable, except that statistically it's one of, if not the most unreliable pieces of equipment ever built in history, but for obvious reasons, as it was doing just amazing things in unbelievable conditions. But we got the perception that it was safe. Now with Elon Musk and SpaceX, we're seeing that we can just launch and launch and launch and everything's fine. But how terrified would you be as an astronaut to get on one of those landers today to go to the moon? How long before we deem this kind of thing safe? And again, I got to ask, what, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And the answer is, we're actually doing exactly what we should be doing as humans. But we're doing it wrong because we're doing it from a godless worldview. See, as Christians, we know that all things are for God's glory. That's a simple, indisputable fact. But that doesn't mean that there aren't secondary or more reasons for everything. This world, in fact, this entire creation was created so God could display his glory and his power to man and so we could experience and enjoy it. We were made to explore, to learn and experiment. There is no reason why we would be limited to only this planet. Why wouldn't that apply to the moon or to Mars, to outer space in general? We were created with unbelievable brains. There's no reason as to why we shouldn't strive to understand the gravitational waves and black holes and tiny planets that orbit distant stars. And we were designed to be very creative. There's no reason why we shouldn't design rockets and space stations and landers and telescopes and moon bases. The problem isn't the what, the problem is the why. See, in a sinless world, our why would always be to give God glory and to understand him more. In fact, even in a sinful world, that's where all base fields of science started. Digging in the earth, scanning the skies, exploring foreign lands, understanding the body, relating mathematics and physics to what we see and experience, despite what we're told today by whatever passes for science, this was all started by those who wanted to understand God and his creation more. Robert Boyle said that a deeper understanding of science was a higher glorification of God. Leonard Euler, the son of a Calvinist pastor, wrote a number of religious texts. Michael Faraday was an elder in his church. Gregor Mendel was a Roman Catholic Augustinian abbot. Isaac Newton was a passionate Protestant who was said to spend more time in the Bible than he did studying math and physics. Carl Friedrich Gauss was a Lutheran who believed science revealed the immortal human soul and that there is complete unity between science and God. George Washington Carver was a Protestant evangelist and Bible class leader who found his faith in Jesus to be the reason he carried out his scientific work. Alessandro Volta was a Roman Catholic who declared that he never wavered in his faith. 
Blaise Pascal was a Roman Catholic theologian. Samuel Morse was a Calvinist who funded a lectureship considering the relation of the Bible to science. And the list goes on and on and on. If it wasn't for Christians wanting to discover the glory of all the observable and the inner workings and the principles of God's creation, who knows where we'd be today? O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David got it, but now God can just kind of take a back seat. We got this now. Don't forget, we're wise, wise man now. And because of our disregard for the God of creation, we're looking for and at the glory of Mother Nature. I mean, how majestic is her name, right? And as soon as we lost focus on the truth, well, science ceased to be science and it became a religion on its own. We, man, are now the pinnacle of evolution and also the biggest mistake evolution has ever made. We're the only beings that can save a dying planet. And we're the reason the planet is dying. We have the perfect plan to escape what we've destroyed here, but we're going to destroy everything else in the process, apparently. So in answer to the question, what are we doing? Well, we're wasting our time, money, intellect, and energy striving to prove there is no God. Imagine with me, if you will, the amount of good we could do in this world if we redirected those resources to helping those in third world countries. Or what kind of discoveries could we make if we focused on curing diseases? Now, these are things they're allegedly doing in the International Space Station, but did we have to spend whatever we spent to do this kind of work up there? Now, how much time and effort would we save in exploring this planet and other planets and moons if we weren't concerned that we were going to destroy the climate or kill a non-existent sign of life somewhere, you know, on a super cold piece of dark moon ice? Rather than working to prove that there may be a microbe somewhere on some tiny distant planet, why don't we work to prove that it actually is a living human baby in the womb of the mother? But science isn't science anymore. Truth is subjective. There's no logic or reason as to what's considered important and what isn't. Man has proclaimed himself to be wise outside of the truth of God, and as a result become foolish. Now, although we can see the handiwork, the eternal power, the divine nature of God through what he's created, now we choose to suppress the truth and ignore what's right in front of us and worship the creation rather than the creator. And as a result, we'll continue to find articles like this one. Man concerned with foolishness, disconnected from reality, truth, and logic, unable to understand that they are not doing science, they're worshiping at the altar of nature. We'll also continue to waste the tangible and intangible resources God has blessed us with in order to, you know, tirelessly, diligently work to prove there is no God. And there will be a handful of scientists, some openly so, some closeted, that will continue to work and design and experiment and research for God's glory, not for man's. And that's what we're called to do. We may not, and realistically we will not, be able to change the trajectory of the religion of science in our current reality, but individually, whatever we eat or drink, whatever we do, we should do it all for the glory of God, whether in word or deed. We can do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
to him be the glory forever. Amen. A number of years ago, I went through a phase where I was telling people not to fight things being called racist. Now, I didn't agree with what was being said, and despite my own advice, I, I did call out the all-too-common cries of racism over things that nobody anywhere ever with a clearish mind, stableish emotions, and an intelligence level slightly north of a houseplant would see as racist. But my point was that we just kind of needed to let this burn itself out. Time and time again, I said that if we let it go, eventually everything will be racist, and then nothing will be, and it'll just all kind of reset itself. Moral of the story, don't listen to my advice. That was stupid, stupid advice. Found on the collegefix.com headline, 72 Things Higher Ed Declared Racist in 2023. Now let me break that headline down for you just a, just a bit. This is a compiled list of 72 things that have been declared racist, but these 72 things were all declared racist in the single year of 2023. That's about one thing every five days that's now racist. And this was just looking at higher education, you know, colleges and whatnot. And if you just dig all the way into the third sentence of the article, you'll find that these were 72 things that the college fix reported on in 2023. So, you know, they, they didn't report on everything. You know that outside of academia, there were even more things declared racist. So how many things are declared racist in a year? I, I don't know. Maybe my advice is still good here, but my timing's bad. I, I kind of thought it would have burned itself out by now, but I guess a daily declaration of this is what's racist today isn't quite enough for people to be done with this nonsense yet. Now, I, I don't want to spend all of our time covering the entire list of 72. I actually have a related topic that I want to focus on. But we need to understand the background in order to see where we're going next. So just for yucks, let's take a look at some of the things that these various storied centers of higher education determined through, I'm sure, rigorous analysis to be racist. All of these can be found linked in the article, as well as the entire list, with many more of them linked to other articles. So if you're really a glutton for punishment, you can find the link for the main article in the show notes below. Headline, Professor on Not Wearing a Mask in 2023. Still racist, ableist, and classist. Oof, that's a triple whammy right there. Uh, so this came from a professor at the University of British Columbia in early 2023 who said that it's still racist, and also ableist and classist, to wander around without a face mask. That's despite masks never actually doing anything, no science to back up the claim that they could ever do anything against the virus, no proof that they ever did anything to help with the spread of COVID, no pandemic, really. I mean, I know, yes, sure, it was declared, but but not really, though. Now, a Twitter tweeter made the comment that COVID most greatly impacted the BIPOC, you know, that's the Black Indigenous People of Color community, and that those living in Asian countries typically masked up prior to COVID anyway. Then added, quote, once again and always, white people... You do not get to say what is or isn't racist. Stop speaking for and over BIPOC. Learn your place, sit down, shut up, and listen to us. Your white saviorism is killing us. Whiteness is a problem. Oof. <clears throat> 
Dr. Amy Tam, the professor in question, who is Asian, with pronouns of she, her, just in case anyone cares, which nobody does, agreed with the tweet, adding that, yes, we need to reinstate indoor mask mandates because COVID is not over. So wear a mask or else you're racist. And if you're white, shut up, I guess. And no, that's not racist for her to say, apparently. A headline... U of Minnesota Anti-Racism Center says white supremacy to blame for Tyree Nichols' killing. Now, you may have forgotten about this one, but this was the case of a black man who was beaten by police officers in Memphis, Tennessee on January 7th. He died three days later. Side note, the police officers were also black. The Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equality from the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota... put out a statement that read in part, quote, Due to structural racism, law enforcement inflicts disproportionate brutality against black people in Minnesota and across the United States. The killings, terror, and oppression are a direct result of anti-black racist attitudes, policies, procedures, and leadership that pervade our institutions. And I think we can all agree that the white supremacist black cops are just the biggest racist black haters of them all. Headline, Clean Pantries Are Racist and Sexist, Loyola Marketing Scholar. Cleanliness apparently is no longer next to godliness. No, no, no. Uh, Quote, cleanliness has been used as a cultural gatekeeping mechanism, professor says. Marketing professor and white woman Jenna Drenton was apparently tired of all these white women posting videos about different ways they organize their pantries. It wasn't only white women doing this, but those are the people that this white woman just couldn't take anymore. You know, because of the racism. She wrote, quote, Cleanliness has historically been used as a cultural gatekeeping mechanism to reinforce status distinctions based on a vague understanding of niceness. Nice people with nice yards in nice houses make for nice neighbors. What lies beneath the surface of this anti-messiness, pro-niceness stance is a history of classist, racist, and sexist social structures. So you tell me, what's more racist, to show your nice, neat yard and home, or to say without saying that black people either aren't capable or don't care enough to have a nice yard and home? It's simply amazing how everyone falls all over themselves to signal how woke they are by calling something racist, but by implication, they're actually the racists. Moving on, headline... You Florida class examines white terror in Frankenstein and other classics. Now, this was noodled out in an African-American studies course entitled Black Horror, White Terror. The course, taught by Professor Julia Molenthal, a black woman, uses, quote, materials on whiteness, black feminism, and queering personhood. She requires her students to read classics such as Frankenstein and somehow connected to the, quote, terror associated with being black in America. Yeah, I don't know what most of that meant either. Moving on. Headline, major medical group declares body mass index racist. So the American Medical Association put out a statement that says BMI isn't really a fair measure since it doesn't account for a number of factors, including sex, gender, which those two are the same thing, actually, age span and race ethnic groups. 
Now, I totally agree that the BMI is not a good measure, even with ethnicities, as different ethnicities are built differently. Now, they further say that it's caused historical harm and has been used for racist exclusion. Now, they don't say how, so I don't know. Headline, now a clown is considered an offensive Halloween costume, question mark. George Washington University freshman Nyla Moxley figured this one out for us. Apparently clowns with, quote, curly wigs and exaggerated features are racist because 150 years ago, two actors created a character called the Tramp Clown, which was, quote, intended to grossly depict black people who had been displaced after emancipation and the end of the Civil War. So, so because... So because two guys were racist, now all clowns are racist. Got it. Headline, Professor Blames St. Paul and Christian Supremacy for Modern Day Racism. Professor Magda Teeter from Fordham University, a Catholic university, has written a book that traces the roots of racism against Jews and blacks to, quote, an enduring Christian heritage of exclusion, intolerance, and persecution. She traces racism to the writings of Paul, you know, the apostle, in the Bible, through the Catholic and Protestant church to today. I'd say that based solely on her haircut and her general look, and yes, I know this is being judgmental, but I'm guessing she's not a real fan of men either. Headline, Geologist Field Camps Criticized as Reliving Manifest Destiny Conquest. The argument is that field camps are a racist, ableist, sexist, role-playing exercise driven by toxic masculinity and centered around the reliving of manifest destiny, quote, subjugating the native populations and the, quote, conquest of the West by the white man. But actually, they're just geologists. That's really just all they really are. Just typically young geologists fresh out of college, and they're just setting up camp in the great outdoors to be close to nature and close to their chosen field of work. It's really all those are. Headline, Norwegian University investigates if white paint is racist. Now, this was a $1.2 million government grant given to Norway's University of Bergen to study how white paint has contributed to white supremacy around the world. This was studying how the, quote, Norwegian developed paint pigment, titanium dioxide white, helped advance white as a superior color. Further, quote, the research will inquire whether titanium white not only led to an aesthetic desire for white surfaces, but was also connected to racist attitudes. <clears throat> Headline, 1619 Project releases new reparations math curriculum for high school students. Yep, enough of your racist colonialist math. In 1619 Reparations Math, quote, students apply math skills, research into historical wealth gaps in the U.S., and an analysis of different reparations models to an investigation into whether or not reparations should be paid to the descendants of enslaved people in the U.S. From... Trying to read that and the fact that they spelled descendants wrong, they may need to check out some of that white spelling or something. Headline, San Fran State Hires Anti-Racist Engineering Dean. Quote, 
San Francisco State University appointed a new dean to lead the College of Science and Engineering to create an environment of multiculturalism, inclusiveness, and equity. So Professor Diane Harris, a black woman who's a teacher in the psychology department, is the new dean of the College of Science and Engineering. I guess to fix things and make it not racist anymore by ensuring there aren't too many white bread engineers. One more headline, Harvard student newspaper calls new 200-word limit on admissions essays racist. Now, Harvard has implemented a new limit of 200 words for their five required application essays, and this quite obviously caters to those from highly privileged backgrounds. According to the editorial board of the student newspaper, the implication is that only Whitey has highly privileged backgrounds, and they state that students, implied would be non-white students, can't condense their lives down to just 200 words. <laughs> Boom. Racist. And there are... um. I mean, just so many more, but we got to keep moving or we'll never get through the end of this segment. So what is the answer for all of this racism that's just embedded and systemic in our country and world and very souls? Some may say, this is all stupid. Well, you're racist. Some may say that we just need to grow up. Boom, racist. Some may say that races don't exist, only one race. <laughs> okay, right-wing, gun-toting, Bible-thumping, racist. Some may say, well, who cares? But some may say you're all wrong and you're all racist. And just because you got more melanin in your skin than us pasty whiteies, if you're on board the racist train, well, you're a white supremacist too. No, the answer is clear. It's money. But they don't say it like that. It's, it's money in the form of reparations. Yeah. Yes, that's the magic word. You can think of SpongeBob in the, in the meme there, the little cardboard box talking to Squidward as he opens his hands, making a rainbow. And rather than saying imagination, he says reparations. Mm hmm. That's the magic word. Found on Axios via MSN.com from January 9th of 2024. Headline The reparations movement is having another movement. I think I might go have a movement. <clears throat> Quote, A growing number of states and local municipalities are launching task forces and programs to examine possible reparations for black American descendants of enslavement and Jim Crow era discrimination, a once fringe idea that's increasingly going mainstream. Uh, Kathy Hochul, the witch of New York. No, I'm sorry, I'm being told she's the governor. I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree on that. Anyway, Hochul is the latest to create a panel to study reparations. She joins California as the next most recent to try to figure out how much people should be paid for being a correctly melanin descendant of a person who was enslaved at a time in the past. Or maybe not. We're not really sure. A civil rights attorney, Arriva Martin, said, quote, Black Americans continue to feel the intergenerational impacts of slavery and of the historic injustices that have occurred since then. It is due time for compensation and redress. And I'd have to ask, do they? And also, is it? Now, this specific civil rights attorney is black and is listed as, quote, an award-winning civil rights attorney, sought-after on-air legal commentator, and nationally recognized children's, women's, and disability rights advocate, dubbed America's Advocate. I mean, you can just feel the intergenerational impacts and historic injustices that this attorney is dealing with just on a day-to-day -day basis. We should start a GoFundMe for her. Now, apparently she represents black families, and remember, we must capitalize the word black, but not the word white, you know, for reasons. She represents black families who apparently had their homes burned in the 1960s in Palm Springs, California, in the name of luxury tourism. Now, 
looking into this. I think she's in the right for pursuing this lawsuit. I have some caveats, but I think this lawsuit, at least in concept, is a good one. Now, I don't want to go in depth, but I'm sure your curiosity is peaked as mine was. Basically, this constituted a one square mile section of land called Section 14 in Palm Springs. As the rest of Palm Springs was growing and developing, this section was staying mostly untouched. Just a bunch of homes inhabited by blacks, Mexicans, and members of the Agua Caliente tribe who were the owners of that land and also other sections in Southern California. Now, apparently developers and the city wanted this land as they wanted to continue developing and growing, but the people who lived there didn't want to sell. The loophole was that many lived in houses that didn't have any modern accommodations, so the city was able to evict residents for not having homes that were up to code. Now, it appears that there was some hinky stuff going on there as well, as the city wouldn't run utilities into that section. Kind of makes it hard to bring a home up to code if you can't hook up to what would bring your house up to code too. Two, something like that. Additionally, there was a new conservatorship and guardianship program with court-appointed conservators thrust upon the tribe because they're just silly engines, I guess, who now managed their finances and leases for them. These conservators started terminating leases and evicting more of the residents. As if this wasn't bad enough, these mostly low-income families were given only 30 days to move out. But many of them didn't even receive the notice, and they weren't given the 30 days before their stuff was thrown out on the street while they were at work or otherwise gone, and the houses were dozed to the ground and burned by the time they got back home. Now, I'm not sure that I see this being done for racial reasons. I think that's more of a coincidence, to be honest, but the reality is that these families were forcibly displaced. It took until 2021 before a formal apology was issued to those affected directly or descended from those affected. In the apology, Mayor Christy Holstedge called it a, quote, city-engineered holocaust. I guess I'm probably not sure I'd go that far as a holocaust by definition is a mass destruction of life. And as far as I could find, this didn't involve anyone being killed or, or dying at all. So maybe a bit dramatic and over the top, but... She was right to issue an apology. The lawsuit is seeking north of $2 billion for the 500 or so plaintiffs, which works out to about $4 million per plaintiff. So is that fair? Maybe. I don't know. It's not for me to say. But as I said, I think this is a worthwhile lawsuit. Now, for my caveats, the Axios article only mentioned that she was representing black people. What about the Mexicans in Agua Caliente, if, if they're still around? I'm not sure. Maybe she's representing them as well, and I just didn't find it. More importantly, let's say she wins this lawsuit. Who pays the settlement? I mean, the money would come from the city, sure, but the city isn't a money-making organization, and I really doubt they're going to do any sort of bake sale to raise $2 billion. Now, the money would come from taxes, right? Or more accurately, the money comes from the residents who pay taxes most, if not all of whom, had nothing to do with this. So is that fair? Again, that's arguable. It should really fall on those who perpetrated this atrocity. But if it was the city that did it, is there a way that doesn't increase taxes, that doesn't negatively affect the people of the city? Like, I don't know, canceling pointless pet projects that can pay for this? Again, no idea. But what you're seeing is a microcosm of the problems inherent with the concept of reparations. Further, does this equate to reparations for slavery? Well, I think that's a real stretch. 
And I think Axios knew that as well, as they jumped straight from a single sentence about the Palm Springs thing to, quote, how we got here, meaning the current reparations discussion, following the murder of George Floyd in 2020, state and local governments began taking a serious look at how reparations could help black Americans make up lost ground. Okay, hold up. George Floyd wasn't murdered. Yes, I know. I'm a bad person for saying that. Probably racist. Hey, oh well. All right. The reality is that George Floyd, per the coroner's report, died from his drug use. Now, did the police use excessive force? maybe, I don't know, I wasn't there, but let's just say maybe. Did that cause him to die? No, it didn't. There was a very good chance his overdose would have killed him regardless, whether on the way home after passing his counterfeit bill or in the back of the cop car where he first started complaining that he couldn't breathe or wherever else. But more to the point, how did we get from a single, I believe, actionable incident in Palm Springs in the 1960s to George Floyd to reparations for black, never-enslaved descendants of former slaves deserving money from white, never-slave-owning descendants of slave owners. And even if we all agree that former slaves should be paid by former slave owners, how is that now black paid by white through the government, who is totally not criminal in their own right, via taxes coming from every color and ethnicity in the United States? I'm not understanding but they explain. Apparently, the 2020 social justice, mostly peaceful, cities on fire, raping, murdering, no-go zone protests drew attention to the systemic racism. In March of 2021, Evanston, Illinois, started distributing checks of up to $25,000 to each eligible resident for housing, either to purchase, pay down a mortgage, or make improvements on, and they're calling that reparations. Funny thing is, this was first passed in 2019, Prior to Floyd, prior to the riot, the protests, the city has committed $20 million to these reparations, which is still ongoing, half of which is coming from a 3% tax on recreational weed sales, and half of which is coming from the city's, quote, graduated real estate transfer tax, which is simply an additional tax on high-dollar real estate sales. So the city of Evanston, Illinois, city council, voted eight to one to start this process with the justification of, quote, repairing the ongoing harm that systemic racism has caused Evanston's black residents. Okay, so a bit of housekeeping here. The town of Evanston, Illinois, was founded in 1857, incorporated, I saw 1863, I also saw 1872, Something like that. It's currently made up of about 77,500 people, 16% or about 12,500 of which are black. During the Civil War, the town of Evanston fought on the side of the abolitionists. Now, I did a search for any sort of civil rights, civil rights era riots in Evanston. I didn't find anything there. Pray tell, what are they reparationing for exactly? I found one website that says the Evanston police have been systemically racist for decades, but their budget keeps getting increased anyway. Now, what have the police done racistly? They don't say, so just shut up about it. Are you racist in a systemic way also? Why are you asking? <clears throat> According to city data, their calculated crime index has been cut in more than half from 2007 to 2020, in fact, they're well below the U.S. average for crime. Something seems to be going right with the police, doing their job, I think. 
But no, 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 no. Eight people out of nine decided that this is what they would do. In fact, I don't even see where this was voted on as a city, like by the population, just the city council. So it wasn't eight people out of nine. It was eight people out of nearly 80,000 people decided that they were going to increase taxes on property sales and increase taxes on weed and, you know, start to make up for injustices that don't appear to ever have taken place because that's the woke flavor of the day. Now, right around the same time, NPR put out an article proclaiming that there were 11 U.S. mayors across the country that were committing to developing pilot projects for reparations. Those cities at that time included Los Angeles, California, Denver, Colorado, Stockton, California, Providence, Rhode Island, Austin, Texas, Durham, North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, Kansas City, Kansas, Sacramento, California, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Tullahassee, Oklahoma. Now, the article states, quote, the mayors had no details on how much it would cost, uh, who would pay for it, or how people would be chosen. All of those details would be worked out with the help of local commissions comprised of representatives from the black-led organizations set up to advise the mayor of each city. But the mayors say they are committed to paying reparations instead of just talking about them. L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti said, quote, well, Let me be clear. Cities will never have the funds to pay for reparations on our own. When we have the laboratories of cities show that there is much more to embrace than to fear, we know that we can inspire national action as well. Why do they always assume that we're afraid of these things? We're not afraid of these things. They're just stupid ideas. Now, if you were to ask me, should reparations be paid to the descendants of slaves? Well, I think, uh, no. No, it's silly. It's quite simply theft. I never owned a slave. You never were a slave. Just because you have dark skin and I don't doesn't make me guilty and you harmed. In fact, judging us both by the color of our skin is, oh, it's nothing but racism. But it's flipped around on me, so I guess it's okay, right? Now, another NPR article from March 2023 tries to help us understand why people like me oppose this idea of reparations. Maybe this can help me understand myself. A few of the arguments that horrible white breads like me tend to make are, quote, it's impossible to place a monetary value on the impact of slavery. And also, quote, African Americans are treated equally in society today. <laughs> wow, how uncaring is it to use logic in reality? One horrible Alabamian was quoted as saying that slavery was wrong, racism is a sin, but, quote, the generation that would be paying for it have nothing to do with what was done in the past, and then you're paying people that have nothing to do with it in the past. But that's just stinking thinking. I think we all agree with that. See, the problem is that we honkies and honkettes are just ignorant. We seem to think that there is near equity in society. Former Yale social psychologist, now at Northwestern, Michael Krauss, who appears to be younger than me by a little bit and of, I'm not really sure, maybe Pacific Islander descent, maybe some Asian background, I can't really tell. He said, quote, it doesn't take much work to understand that black people continue to be discriminated against in the job market, housing, banking, and other areas. He's come to believe that some speaking of white people, consciously or not, are avoiding information they might find uncomfortable. So, are we? Are black people really discriminated? Because I work in the world. I've been a member of multiple global companies. I've interviewed for many others. It's almost like there are laws set up against, you know, discrimination like that. It's also like there are all sorts of programs, etc., like geared toward minorities to help prop them up above others. 
Now, I don't think I've ever been passed over for a job because I'm white, but I don't know that for sure. I also don't care. I just want to do my job to the best of my ability, or thereabout, and get compensated fairly for it. I'd say that maybe Professor Krauss needs to look inward himself because maybe there's information he's avoiding because it'll destroy the narrative that he's built his entire life on. So what exactly is owed to the descendants of those who were enslaved in this country? Well, according to an article from September 2020 on abcnews.go.com, depending on the compound interest rate you use, as of 2019, it could have been in the neighborhood of $11.4 trillion. That would be closer to $14.5 trillion today. Hashtag Bidenomics. For comparison, if you gathered up all the minted money in the world, you know, all the coins and bills, you'd have about $5 trillion. If you gathered up all of that along with funds and everybody's checking and savings and money market accounts, you know, the relatively easily accessible funds, we're talking about $80 trillion. So even still today, $14.5 trillion, it's not really something we could just, you know, throw together and, and hand on out there. Now, this figure is calculated based on wages earned between 1620 and 1840 by non-enslaved workers, subtracting costs related to the care of slaves. So it's at least an actual calculated number. It wasn't just some number they threw out there. But let me ask you this. What about the blood and treasure to fight the Civil War? We're still the only country, or, or one of the very few, depending on how you qualify it, to ever go to war with itself to end the practice of slavery. Measures were put into our Constitution to allow for the future elimination of slavery. Thomas Jefferson, if you remember back to our look at the founding documents, wrote an entire section regarding slavery and the fact that the king forced it on the colonies and it was wrong and it should go away. But that was removed because there was a faction that would not have joined with the others against the crown if it had remained and freedom wouldn't have happened. But shouldn't the Civil War factor into that? What about the various programs from the admittedly imperfect 40 acres and a mule program to affirmative action and whatever other various programs are geared toward minorities to try to move them to a point of equality, or so the narrative goes? What about those? Furthermore, when determining reparations, we do need to keep in mind that not all slaves were black and not all slave owners were white. I believe the very first slave owner in the colonies was a black man, if I recall. But how do we determine who descended from slaves and who descended from slave owners. We can't just go by color of skin. And when we say descendants, to what degree? Is that all grandchildren at whatever generation we're at? What about nieces and nephews, cousins? Where do we draw that line? And is it really fair, since that's really what we're concerned with here, to take the money from everyone to give to some? Or do we do the same analysis on descendants of slave owners? And then how far out do we go with those relations? We just take their money and give it over. This is simply an impossible, undefinable, purely emotional proposition. Feels good to say this, but it can't work. Of course, there are some who will admit that reparations aren't really viable, but we must, must do something. So alternatives are being investigated, comprising of programs like mortgage down payment assistance, free health care, free tuition, etc., etc., while others argue that this doesn't address the need for reparations. Only cash will do that. Now, I'd argue, and I have argued many times before, that the black population is, for the most part, under a heavier burden of enslavement today than they've ever been. The political left in this country has always been, are currently now, and will always be the enslavers. That's because they're rooted in Marxism and evil. 
no longer being able to keep those that they consider to be inferior, you know, the lesser evolved savages in control on the plantations, they had to devise a new way to enslave them without them knowing, without anyone else calling them out on it. And the way they came up with? Money. If you could get them hooked on free money and free stuff, place them in free or cheap housing, regardless of how terrible or crime-ridden it was, if they could take the edge off with drugs and alcohol and sex, we could destroy the family. If we could convince them to kill their unborn babies, well, we could continue to keep them in control, you know, both physically and populationally. But we could do it all legally and seemingly above board. The Democrats and complicit Republicans are still the slave masters. The ghetto is the plantation. Money is the whip that drives them and destroys them. At the same time, the opportunity is there for those that want to, to get out of the slave camp. Everyone points at Barack Obama, president of the United States, and, and yeah, sure. But what about the professors, the judges, the athletes, the media personnel, TV, movie, and music celebrities, not to mention engineers, teachers, bus drivers, janitors, CEOs, attorneys, and every field out there. The reality is that were people not unfortunately taken out of Africa and other nations and forcibly brought here, many, if not most of the black Americans today, would not have had the opportunities to have the lives they have today. Now, does that justify slavery? No, I mean, absolutely not. But we've lost sight of a sovereign God who, although man meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So look, reparations aren't possible. They aren't realistic. They aren't even feasible when you really start digging into the details. Systemic racism isn't a thing today. Sure, there are racists from all ethnicities to all ethnicities, but systemic racism toward black people or anyone just isn't a real thing anymore. Regardless, there's really only one solution for all of this, and that solution is found in the truth of the Bible. The only way out of the mess we're currently in with regard to race relations is to start by understanding race as a made-up construct. We're one race. We're the human race. We're not evolved with black people as Darwin placed them being savages slightly of all past apes. We're all image bearers of God created by God. We all have souls that will spend an eternity somewhere. Skin color just shows the amazing artistic imagination of God. We need to understand that all humanity is our neighbor and start to live with each other and judge each other by our character, by our fruits, by our actions, rather than by color or perception of origin. We need repentance. More than money, there needs to be repentance by those who are knowingly and purposefully enslaving others, regardless of color. None of us can repent to anyone for slavery. We can express solidarity with all mankind that slavery is an evil injustice, that it was shameful, that it can never happen again. But we can't repent for the actions of others. And really, there is nobody alive today that could truly accept that apology. And from a human standpoint, speaking of injustice, we need justice. Those today who are knowingly keeping others in an oppressed state need to be brought to justice. And capital punishment isn't off the table, in my opinion. As, you know, countless lives have been and are being destroyed by what our government has done and is doing. And before we go completely dark, we need forgiveness. Money won't make it better. Vengeance won't make it better. Genuine repentance and sincere forgiveness are the only things that could ever remove the burden that it seems so many are carrying. And as I said... That applies to today, not centuries ago. The injustices of the past need to be turned into lessons, warnings for the future, and nothing more. And as I said, 
we need to correct our understanding about God. God was no more absent or out of control with regard to slavery than he was during the Jewish Holocaust or is during a massive hurricane or a cancer diagnosis than he is with the birth of a newborn baby or the flowering of the fields or a financial windfall. Job, one of the oldest books in the Bible, shows a man who lost everything but his life, and at points he probably would have gladly given that up as well had God required it of him. Job responds to his wife, asking him why he didn't just curse God and die by saying, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Job, in a position that I'd argue none of us have ever found ourselves close to, knew that God was sovereign that God had the right as the creator and owner to enact his perfect will upon his creation, as he does every second of every day in all of history. Job, although clearly not full of joy, was full of reverence. God was God. Job was not. Yahweh, through Isaiah, said, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. We Christians have this misconception that God is in control of the good, but not the bad. That's Satan or something. We seem to think that God has one facet to his being, but that's not biblical, nor is it logical. God is in complete control of every atom in all of creation at all times. Not even for a split second does God relinquish control of who we are and what we do. Slavery was not a surprise to God. He didn't struggle to figure out what he could do about it. Slavery was, depending on your theology, either allowed or ordained by God for a much greater ultimate purpose, for God's glory and the good of those who love him. So what exactly was God's purpose in slavery? What good and what glory comes out of a history that contains racism? I don't know. I'm not God. Now, I fully believe that in glory, we will understand how all the tragedy, pain, and tears interlock with all the joy and happiness and triumphs, creating the final picture of God's glory and our good. But until then, all we have are puzzle pieces. As time goes on, as history keeps building, we get more and more pieces. But we don't know what the final picture is supposed to look like. We don't know how many pieces we're supposed to have. We don't know how to fit the pieces together. And we're working by old-timey oil lamp, not a floodlight. We're told in Psalms that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Putting that in context of the times, we see only a few steps in front of us at a time. That's all, and that's all we need to see. God, however, created the entire puzzle. He's got the picture. He's working in perfect light, knowing exactly what pieces are and what pieces are yet to come. The only way to move past a history with racism, a history of slavery, a current culture of modern-day ghetto slavery, is repentance by those who need to repent forgiveness by those who can forgive, and justice enacted upon the guilty. And those can only work if we place ourselves back in our correct position, image bearers of God, one race, one blood, brothers, sisters, neighbors, and removing ourselves from and placing God back in his rightful place as the all-powerful, sovereign, creator, owner, all-loving God. Then, rather than constantly arguing over the piece or two of the puzzle that we're all staring at, we can live together in the peace that comes from the knowledge that God has the entire puzzle, our entire existence, every circumstance, every tragedy, every triumph, in complete and total control, and he always will. And with that, sadly, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. I feel we've bonded as we've laughed and cried and twisted our faces in incredulity. If you've enjoyed or found value in what you've heard, go on and do all the podcast things. And don't forget to check the show notes for links and contact info. 
Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.